Hi, I'm so glad you're here. The Covenant of Water is truly one of the most gripping, exquisite novels I have ever read. And I've been reading since I was three. It's my 101st book club pick. I'm so enthralled with this epic story. I think of it as a modern masterpiece. And now I'm excited for you to hear our captivating conversation with the brilliantly talented author, Dr. Abraham Verghese. What an honor to be with you. On this six-part podcast, we're diving into all 10 parts of The Covenant of Water. That is the best by Felicia moment I ever read. <laughs> we'll also hear from readers like you. What was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this book? Hmm. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Come along with me on a soulful, extraordinary journey through adventure, family secrets, medical mysteries, romance, and finally, the shimmering resilience of the human spirit. This is The Covenant of Water, the podcast. Hello, everybody. It is great to be here with you for our book club readers and Super Soul podcast listeners. This is the final episode of our series on the covenant of water. Say it with me, the covenant of water. And I have just adored this opportunity to be with you all and in conversation with the wise Abraham Verghese, <laughs> the wise and wonderful Abraham Verghese. We're talking about parts nine and 10 of the book, and the jaw-dropping, can I say jaw-dropping, stunning conclusion of the covenant of water. As always, we're going to have some reader questions, so let's jump right in. I have to tell you, knowing that it's our last episode, uh, I reread the book today, and reread the book, not today. I reread the final 100 pages today. I'd been rereading it all week, and I was so emotional. And even now, coming to the end of this podcast series, I feel very emotional. It's like, um, it's been an incredible journey for me, and I am so proud to have gotten to know you and your ability to put these words on a page and create this narrative that has opened our hearts and moved us to, because I, I will be forever changed. I will be forever changed after reading this book. It's incredible to hear you say that. And mm. I am sad that we've we're come to the end. This has mm. been such a glorious series of discussions. And mm. I'm learning about my book through your reaction. <laughs> no, I really am. So happy to help you learn about your book. <laughs> so everybody, as you know, part nine begins with Japan's, Japan's uh, management of Power and Bill. In chapter 73, three rules for a prospective bride. And on page 609, you write, under Juppin's watch, Parambil is becoming a lush Eden, a model farm. The plantain and mango trees sagging with fruit and young palms sporting, sporting thick, thick yellow, yellow necklaces, necklaces of coconuts. Their thriving dairy sells milk to a cold storage business providing an additional source of revenue. Parambil is doing well. What I want to know is, does Juppin's success 
symbolize movement towards some form of equality and the possibility of a waning caste system? Yes, I think so. At least in that circumscribed world of Parambel, mm -hmm. you know, there's a demonstration that, first of all, how talented he is, mm -hmm. and secondly, you know, that he's sort of an equal partner in this venture. So, mm -hmm. yeah, to me, it's a rich moment. I know as you travel throughout the country, many readers have responded to the marriage broker, uh, Anyan? Broker Anyan, yes, indeed. Broker Anyan, and his three points. Uh, what, what are audiences saying about him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was fishing around for the right passage to read, mm -hmm. one that wouldn't give away too much, that, you know, had a little bit of dialogue and drama, mm -hmm. voices, my newly, learned, mm -hmm. my newly learned talent for speaking in the voice. Well, yes, and performing. And, yeah, and performing. performing, yeah. And, uh, but they love this because it's, uh, it's actually pretty wise. I mm -hmm. mean, the three rules that he espouses, you know, that set a date. First set a set date. Set a date. Yeah. You can wait, wait, spend your whole life waiting for the right person to come <laughs> along. Set, set a, a date. date okay. And then find the person. Shall I tell you the other two? Yes, please do. The second is uh, all impediments are minor impediments, and minor, minor impediments are no impediments. I love that one. <laughs> I love that one. And then the final one is to know a girl's character you look to the mother. Wow. To know the boy's character. You also. You look to the mother. And I love the pedantic way he speaks, where he, he's tempting the responder to say the incorrect answer so he can go wrong. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Which yes. was actually a favorite style of medical school mm -hmm. professors in India, was this, this sort of questioning and then pick, you know, jumping on you to make the point that you were wrong. Well. Uh, and, I, and people are enjoying your performances. I think so. They're a bit surprised. I'm a bit surprised. Uh, yes. Prior to doing the audiobook, I would have just read it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lillian has a question about a passage. Lillian? Hi. Hi. My name is Lillian, and I love Oprah's perspective, and I'm sure that of her greatest teachers, that life is a classroom. And this book was a tremendous class for me. There's one particular line I really love to hear you kind of expand more on the lesson that you want your readers to take away from it. And I'll read it so I make sure I get it right. And it's repeated several times throughout the book. Most impediments are minor impediments and minor impediments are no impediment. Please expand for us. We, we love you. that too, Lillian, we love that too. Well, uh, first of all, I, I must say thank you for that question, but I'm really not trying to hammer some lesson, lesson into a, a reader, you know? Okay. If I've learned one thing, <laughs> if I've learned one thing in our multiple podcasts discussing the covenant of water, it is that you did not start out with an intention of teaching us anything. You were just doing what great authors do, trying to tell a great, a great story, story well. A great story well told. Yeah. And I should tattoo that somewhere on myself mm -hmm. if I ever get a tattoo. Mm -hmm. That's the principle. But, you know, on the other hand, I don't, uh, if it still serves the story, I'm happy to throw in things like Broker Onion and his lessons, which are a form of instruction, yeah. but they're... When you're thinking about it, I don't know, does this happen at a writer's workshop or when you're learning how to write a novel, that there has to be a balance of humor and there has to be you know some funny people and some obviously some serious people and some characters that you like and don't like 
Not when I attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. There was just the story in front of you that you were all discussing, mm -hmm. and the person whose story was up kept quiet. They were like a fly on the wall. But it was all about that moment when the fictional dream broke down because of something clumsy you did. So it was mm -hmm. really not about this is the formula, or you know, we never talked about agents or publishers. It was all about the words on the page. All about the words yeah. on the page. So. After Mariama reads her father's journals, she goes to her mother's sculpture and speaks to it, and she has this epiphany on page 627. Will you read? I'd be happy to. I'm uh, just letting people know that Appa is father and Ama means mother. Yes. Mm -hmm. The condition, it's just life, isn't it, Ama? She says, speaking to the stone woman. Maybe I'm not looking to solve the mystery of the condition, or the mystery of why I'm on this earth. Mystery is the nature of life. I am the condition. Maybe it isn't the workings of Appa's mind that I'm after, the clues to an inherited disease. I think, Amma, that it's really you I'm looking for. We love that. I think here I was foreshadowing, signaling to the reader, or just entertaining myself to say, this is gonna set you, this is setting you up because the mother's coming back, you know? She's looking for her and she's about to show up. I hope I didn't give that away too much. No, it's fine because we're here. This, this is what we're this talking about. This is where about. we are. Yeah. This is where we are. Well, no, you didn't foreshadow with that for me. Because that is the last thing I expected. Yeah. I would have to say, and I've been saying all along, readers, and I know many of you agree with me because I've been reading your comments, that whatever you think is going to happen, it's not going to happen. And that's a really good thing here. Louisa has a question about a quote from Section 9. Louisa? Hi, my name is Louisa. I finished the book um, about two weeks ago, and it has just been stuck in my brain. I can't get it out. So many amazing quotes and moments, um, but there's a quote in chapter 73, and it says, looks change, but character does not. And I'm wondering if this is something that was told to you, um, because it's something I have a feeling I'm going to mention to my children, <laughs> um, because I think it's such an important, important thing to teach others. Well, thank you so much for that question. Um, you know, I think I've always been fascinated by the arranged marriage system, partly because it was the rule pretty much when I was growing up, certainly for my parents it was. And this was a truism you often heard that, you know, character was more important than looks and more important than any accomplishment was, you know, mm -hmm. what was the girl's character, the boy's character, what was the parent's character? So, uh, and you know, I felt it was sort of a trite, superficial thing to be asking. But, you know, as you get older, you, recognize you realize it's that a is true. pretty profound thing. It's just yeah. that you were not mature enough to understand what that meant at the time that you heard it. Well, there's a scene after Lynn and his brain surgery, you all know this one, where Mariama is overcome with grief, and you write, to Mariama's surprise, a nurse comes and sits beside her and prays aloud. Faith at this institution is concrete, not abstract, is what is so amazing. And after her father's death, she turned her back on religion, but then having lost faith, she closes her eyes while there and the nurse prays. And she realizes that it's okay because Lennon needs all the help that he can get. 
I imagine you've seen a lot of conflicted uh, people wrestle with their faith in hospitals, true? I have. Uh, I think we all at different times are conflicted and wrestle with our faith. And the nature of faith is the absence of certainty and mm -hmm. you, still, you still believe. But I also wanted to pay tribute to this particular institution, which is real, the Christian Medical College, just a remarkable place where people work hard, do great work, and they do it because they have a mission. They have a common intention, and that is to serve the ill. It's not mm. about money and reputation, you know, and so it's just kind of a magical place. I didn't graduate from there, but I had a chance to visit, and uh, I remember especially being struck by this picture on the wall of an operating room and surgeons, you know, working mm -hmm. away with Christ in the background, you know. Uh, it just seemed a remarkable thing for a hospital where, you know, these days we're much more trying to be more nuanced uh, and not, not offend anybody. And not that I'm, you know, trumpeting this, but it just seemed like a very clearly intentioned ministering to the person in front mm. of you. Well, after Lydon undergoes brain surgery, Mariama changes his soil sheets, turning him, giving him a bed bath. I love Mariama in that moment. On page 651, she asks, shouldn't every physician learn this? Isn't this what medicine is really about? Is she expressing the ideal that you have or believe that uh, physicians should strive for? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm also reflecting my own experiences of, of having worked as a nursing assistant, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one time I was rounding with my team. Is there anything more humbling than that? There's nothing more humbling. And, you know, no. I, uh, the, as we're making our discussion, the nurse walks in, and this is in Tennessee, and says, do y'all smell poop? <laughs> 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 and everyone took two steps back. I took a step forward with her. And there is actually a technique to changing a poopy sheet in a bedroom patient. You know, you roll them one way, you roll them the other way. And I felt proud that I had the ability to, to do that. And that part of, that's part of what we should know how to do. You know, we should be aware that this doesn't happen by someone waving a wand and the poop goes away. You know, mm -hmm. step forward. Step forward. Yeah. Do it. Wow. That says a lot about who you are, Abraham. No, it says a lot about being humbled by working alongside these folks. And, you know, I, that's the job I well, did. Well, you stepped forward. Some other folks stepped back. But I, I have a feeling that all those who were in the room with me, my students that day, mm -hmm. probably never forgot that example. You know, I don't know, but I would like to think that they didn't. That you stepped forward. That I stepped forward. The nurse stepped forward well, together. Well, that's a, such a metaphor for stepping forward when things get messy, when the things are at their messiest. That's and I did it with skill. She and I knew exactly how to do it and get the poopy diaper out of there, cleaned up and, you know, tuck the new sheet under him while he's rolled to one side, roll him to this side, pull the sheet out the other way, make hospital corners, and we're done. Wow. So here we are. Here's the moment. Shocker. Late one night, Mariama is studying her father's journals. Y'all were as stunned as I was. And in this really knockout revelation, she learns that her beloved father, Philippos, all this time, 
was not her biological father. This was such a shocker, didn't you all think? When did you, okay, when did you know that this is how you wanted the story to go? Well, so this is a very technical moment because clearly Mariama needs to get this information. Clearly she needs to confront her real father. But how do we get this information to her? Do we get it to her in life yeah. while her father's alive? Do we get it yeah. after he died? If so, how? Yeah. And so at one level, someone could criticize me and say, well, that was a half-assed move. You had her read his diary and find out. But honestly, I tried other ways. And finally, given that he was such an inveterate journal writer, kind of like I am. I mean, there's very little that goes by that I'm not... Writing. writing about it solely for myself, not a soul sees it, mm -hmm. but me. And so if you look at those things, you're looking at the, my, the insides of my mind, my darkest thoughts, my happiest thoughts, my you know, lascivious thoughts, whatever thoughts mm -hmm. I have are there. So she stumbles onto that, and it's no surprise that it would be in there, but buried somewhere, buried. She really had to stumble through work her way through many volumes to get to that. Because he was only doing that for himself, obviously. Absolutely for himself. Yeah, yeah. And he was so conflicted that to put the words on the page were something that had been, he'd written around it. He never wrote those words until that moment of right. her birthday. And then he broke all his rules. He used capital letters, he uppercase letters. He took up the whole page. You know, visually, she knew something had happened that day. And um, I think, I, I'd like to think it works. I, I hope mm. readers think it works. I hope you think it works. But that was a way to convey what she needed to know now for all these, you know, I tossed all these balls up in the air. Now all the threads have to Stop connect. Stop me in my tracks. I <laughs> went, what? <laughs> uh, and I know you all did too. I mean, you just, you're just like, okay, well then that was worth the time and all the effort and the many a times you picked up the book and put down the book that was worth it getting to that part let's head to part 10 the unforgettable ending of the covenant of water digby is performing surgery on a patient with leprosy when mariama arrives at St. Bridget's on page 670. In chapter 80, Failure to Blink, Digby talks to himself. Without the gift of pain, we have no protection. Amazing, Amazing to me how, how few, few understand. understand this. That's the nature of clinical leprosy. Not many physicians want to study it. So explain why pain is the touch tone to spiritual growth, if you can. Yeah, I mean, this is pain working at many different levels. Mm -hmm. But as a medical student, it was always surprising to me to discover for the first time that the reason leprosy causes these horrible deformities is not because the bacteria is chewing away at flesh, but very simply because you don't feel your limbs. And so, you know, you're traumatizing it without even knowing it. Mm. And this is a, a true anecdote of Paul Brand, a very famous hand surgeon, driving past, you know, his lepers who were huddled in a group and one of them was trying to turn a roti or chapati over and was frustrated by the tongues and this reached into the fire and just mm -hmm. flipped it over, something you and I could never do. So the absence of pain is really 
the root cause of all their suffering. Had they had the gift of pain, it would never have happened. In fact, the name of his biography is, his memoir is The Gift of Pain, mm. because it really is a gift. And I think on a metaphorical level, you know, coming back to my experience as a nursing assistant, which then seemed like a hardship, a hard life, and you know, I was envious of the doctors who came and went. But you know, that pain made me who I am as a physician, I would like to think. It gave me my sense of strong solidarity with my colleagues in nursing, which to this day, I'd like to think make us as a team take better care of the patients than if I wasn't feeling that sense of solidarity. Mm -hmm. So, but at, you know, at so many levels in my life, your readers' lives, pain is the thing that shapes us and it's a gift in its own way. You might not see it that way at the time. Most of us don't. Most of us don't, yeah. In a novel full of so many uh, emotional and heart-stopping uh, moments, this next one, I think, just froze us all in our tracks. Uh, I don't know about you all, but I had to put the book down for a moment and give myself a few breaths. Mariama, this is the moment when Mariama and Digby are in his office and they're watching a woman with leprosy um, through the window on page 672. Can you read that aloud for us? I can. Page 672. <sighs> the view hasn't changed. The lawn outside is brilliant, like spilled green paint. In its center, clad in pure white, the unblinking woman still sits, sorting the millet. Mariama, the woman there in the sun, she's probably the greatest Indian artist alive. She's the love of my life, the reason I've spent 25 years at St. Bridget's. Mariama, that is Elsie, your mother. I hate to keep saying, when did you know, but that revelation, was that, when was that a revelation to you? Ah, uh, again, much later than readers would assume. Yeah. Um, I had Digby and Elsie getting together, and, and then at some point it came to me, you know, all this investment in leprosy, and it made perfect sense. Digby had been there, he had worked there, and, uh, you know, it's a cruel thing to subject my the lovely Elsie to this, this yes, gifted so, artist. And, yes. But once I saw the first hint of this coming together, then of course, you know, I, it might've been a one or two or three years before I finished the book. Once I saw that, then it's a, it's a matter of really working to make sure, A, that nobody sees it coming and B, that it feels truthful when it does happen. It was so stunning, but also felt so truthful. Like, and also, as I've been saying all along, nothing we would have ever imagined. And the fact that we then learn that there were times where she had gone to watch in silence her daughter from afar. That's why I was thinking when she was coming out of the convention, she, Mariama, was coming out of that convention with Big Amachi, that perhaps maybe one of I'll the people who was standing out there was, was as one of the, you know. Absolutely. Beggars with leprosy would have been her mother. And, and I'm so glad you didn't, you know, foreshadow that because it was, it was stunning. It was really, 
you have to put the book down and go take a breath. Like, and that's when I said, who is this man, Abraham <laughs> Verghese? Who is this guy? Really, oh. really. You know, I mean, I, I wonder where some of these things came from. You know, I wish I could say I was just this clever guy who saw all this and put it together like a puzzle. One of our readers, Che, has a question about the many love relationships in the book. Che? Hi, my name is Shay. I am an educator as well as a dating coach over at Dating for Educators. So naturally, the many relationships throughout this book deeply intrigued me from Big Amachi's marriage at 12 years old to Digby and Celeste's affair, um, Elsie and Philippos being married, and then Elsie pairing up with Digby later down the line and all of the relationships in between. And so my question sort of falls within the same light. Dr. Verghese, what would you say that readers can learn about love, romance, and passion from your work, The Covenant of Water? You know, I mean, I love that you credit me with, you know, some kind of authority to speak about about those things. Um, you know, I think all It feels I'm... like you have authority with all of these <laughs> great uh, relationships. Well, I think I'm describing some very dysfunctional, strange relationships, you know, a tortured marriage uh, that leads to a wife fleeing and then, you know, uh, a beautiful relationship between Digby and Elsie at the end. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't have an agenda. I'm, I think I, I'm a incurable romantic. I think romantic love is beautiful. It lifts us. It has this energy that, you know, just sort of carries you into the air. Mm, it's magnetic. And, uh, yeah, it's magnetic. And it also can drop you like a rock, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's life. Life is like full of these things. Or you discover, as Digby did, that when you find your great love, your moment is already gone. That, you know, it's not going to be what you thought it was because it already, you know, your, your true love is telling you the story about their body and their illness. And you have to transcend that mm. and love the soul, you know? So, but I'm not preaching. I really am not preaching. I wouldn't presume to do that. I'm hoping that I, I make echoes in you of all your experiences, I, I, that I bring you to thinking about what you've been through. I'm certainly not advocating some sort of truth or truism. But it's so interesting because you do it so graciously and profoundly that it feels like you're speaking to us about that this is more than just a, a story of these characters, but that you're talking to us about life and that wonderful quote about fiction representing what life is. Exactly. The yes. great lie that tells the truth. The great lie that you tells know, the truth. I suppose if I have a message of it, and I don't, but you know, I think one truism that I perhaps was trying to bring out in the book is that, you know, very often the kind of love, is, love we have is one that requires possession. Yes. Or it's a love that's conditional, and the moment conditions change, then, you know... So Digby, Digby's love is not conditional. He marries a beautiful woman who he knows, because of his medical training, is not going to stay beautiful. Far. She's going to be disfigured. She's going to be repulsive to strangers. And he's going to have to look through that outer dermis exterior to the soul of the greatest living Indian artist and keep that in mind. And uh, obviously not something that I ever experienced, but this is, the, this is what a writer can do, is allowed to do, is to you know, 
take these things to the extreme and imagine them. But I must say, I felt it. I felt it for him. I felt how much he loved her, and I felt that he would make the sacrifice. It felt truthful to me. I wouldn't put it in there if I didn't think that oh, they'd I be I knew. It. I just don't even know what that is, but I, I did feel it. I felt that it was true for him, and I was like trying to imagine you know, who, who would do that, who I, I don't... You know, the moment that he washes Elsie's feet. Well, this is what I wanted to talk about. There's a beautiful passage about that moment. Digby, the moment he learns that Elsie has leprosy. In chapter 83, To Love the Sick, Ooh, love this chapter. On page 699, you say this. He held her tight. What did humans have in their arsenal for these moments? Nothing but pathetic moans and tears and sobs that did nothing, changed nothing. Water sloshed over the tiles. Precious water, abundant water, water that could wash away blister fluid and blood, wash away tears, wash away sins if you believed, but would never wash away the stigmata of leprosy, not in their lifetime. Because they had no Elisha to say, wash seven times in the Jordan and be cured, no son of God to touch the leprous sores and make them go away. May I just say that to me it was highly symbolic because, you know, the, the washing of the feet of the patient uh, when I'm caring for a diabetic foot, and you know, I, I, I'm always there's always these echoes of the meaningfulness of handling the foot of the other. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's important. It comes, it's biblical. It's biblical, you know, it's biblical. and it's the ultimate service, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think she was obviously. Um, healed by him, but not cured, which is what we talked about when we first started these conversations, that the real purpose of medicine is to do that wherever possible. And I should point out, he was healed by her, but would never be cured. But would never be cured. Yeah, I mean, his tortured love till then, in his own way, was healed. Mm. even though she wasn't how she should have been. Mm. We want to go to one more, Rita. I hear Sarah has a question. Hi, my name is Sarah, and this question relates maybe best to Section 10. And this question is for Oprah. Oprah, you say that a book has the power to change you. And I'm just curious, how are you different now than before you read The Covenant of Water? Hmm. Well, there's a, there's a beautiful gospel song that speaks to uh, a change, a change has come over me. And I love that song because when I had the Legends Ball here on uh, my property in 2005, many gospel singers, R&B singers, Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick, were all on the lawn singing that a change, a change has come over me. I'm changed. Yeah. And I have had that song going in my head because I feel that this is one of those um, books or experiences that has forever altered the way I see myself and the way I see life, actually. Um, 
I was sharing earlier in one of our episodes that I walk into a room differently. I walk through nature differently. I greet other people differently. It just has opened me in ways that um, I feel changed and I feel more spiritually alive and more awakened and alert because of uh, the words from Abraham Verghese. And I would have to say, I think I will forever uh, live differently and love differently because of this book. So I, I just don't think you can do better in, in writing a novel or any kind of material than to have, have I, and I know my experience with this book is one of the reasons, one of the ways I am able to choose a book club, I think somebody asked this earlier, is as I'm reading, I always know that if I can feel it, I, know I can get at least a million other people to feel it. And so I know that this thing that I feel about the book um, is the way a lot of you have felt too. And I just want to thank you for, for taking this journey with us and for being a part of this covenant of water experience. And I, I, I thank you for the question. And I'm going to ask you the same question. <laughs> How are you different? I don't think there's anything I can say to top what you just said. Mm. But may I say, I mean, I identify with being changed by many of the great novels that, you know, entered my life early on. And when they did, they were like, you know, wise people that had landed inside me and told me what to do. And so my highest ambition as a writer was one day to have that effect on a reader, um, for that reader to be you and your millions of followers, uh, you know, my cup overflowed. Mm. So would you read the ending for us, Abraham? It would be my honor. Wrapping up here in chapter 84, The Known World, on page 715, you write, Her mother comes closer, even closer, until at last both her palms touch the clear window pane, arresting her progress. They rest there. Digby is about to place his hands on the inside of the pane, overlapping hers, but he stops and looks at his daughter, his eyebrows raised questioningly, without thinking, without having to think. Mariama feels herself drawn forward. She puts both her palms on the glass pane, pressing and overlapping her mother's hands so that at that moment, all is one and nothing separates their two, two worlds. Thank you. Ah. Ah. It's a joyful moment. I shouldn't be in tears. I'm in tears of joy. Ah, uh, tears of joy. I mean, that is the, the ending of all endings. And I just want to say, um, that I, I, I appreciate what this novel represents so much that I did something I've never done and, um, never done for a book that I've chosen as a book club. Um, me and my, my Harpo team 
we got the rights to this book because one of the things that I said to you when I first called to tell you about doing the, choosing it as a book club is that um, I think that this story should come to life, you know, on film somehow. And I really felt in my spirit that I should be the steward of that somehow. And so I'm pleased to tell you all that we begin the process whenever the writer's strike is over and uh, start to find someone who can take what you have done here and begin to adapt it uh, for screen. So I thank you for that. I'm so honored. Yeah. Thank you. And so I have so much gratitude to all of our readers. Uh, for your really thoughtful questions and um, for, for actually going on this journey with us. It feels like, I know, the first time I read it, I felt like I had been to Kerala. I felt like I had um, been in the boat with her when she was leaving her house for the first time. Uh, Bigamachi. I felt like I was experiencing it. I felt like this wasn't just snapshots of people's lives, but as you all have expressed, it was like a facsimile of life. It was like stepping into someone's life. So I thank you for that. And I, you. you know, I just say, God bless you. God bless you for being the human that you are, for the time that you gave to us here, and for what is, um, you know, I, I, I often think that when you do something and it benefits the world, that it is an offering to the world. And that's what you did. You worked for 14 years, many times not even knowing what the outcome would be. And, you know, having your own dark moments and going through what human beings go through and maintaining your day job. But you stayed the course. And what you have given us is not just an offering, but a true gift. The covenant of water. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> we, did it. we did it. I know this novel has made an impact on everyone who reads it. I'd love to hear your thoughts and how it has impacted you. Find us at Oprah's Book Club on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and check out Oprah Daily for even more about The Covenant of Water and author Abraham Verghese. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener. The Covenant of Water audiobook is narrated by the author, Abraham Verghese. It's available now wherever books are sold. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.